Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. This is Dr. Casey Patrick joining you again with the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. First of all, thank Andy Adams on the board, as always, for making us sound good. Um, today, we have a special guest with us, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Weinstein. She's the chief of the Division of Pediatric Emergency Medicine at Indiana University and the deputy medical director for pediatrics with Indianapolis EMS. Also a residency colleague of mine, good friend, expert in the field, and we're lucky to have her. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Hey, Casey, thanks for having me. You're welcome. We are super excited to have you today. This is, again, non-accidental trauma in the pediatric patient is, is a topic that nobody really likes to talk about. And we have to think about it and talk about it. It's always a difficult situation. Um, so let's, let's get started with, with kind of a straightforward, simple question. You know, did, we're talking to paramedics today, and do paramedics really have a role to play in the diagnosis of non-accidental trauma? Is this, is this a serious problem? You know, how do, how do, you, how do you teach your medics to, to approach these patients? You know, I think, unfortunately, non-accidental trauma is everybody's problem, and unfortunately, it's a pretty big deal. So in the U.S., the numbers cited for as recently as 2015, about 1,700 children died from abuse and neglect, and roughly 700,000 children were victims of abuse and neglect. So this affects a large population of our pediatric community in the U.S., and unfortunately, none of these kids come with sort of bumper stickers that say, I'm here to see you because someone is abusing me right there. Rarely is that part of the history that you get. And so it makes it even more challenging for the medical community to identify and then keep these children safe. And our paramedics really are the front lines. They're in the home. They get the first story. And so their report of events and assessment of events is, is pretty critical for a lot of these cases. Exactly. This is always under the radar, right? I mean, people don't call and say, please send an ambulance to our house for abuse, right? I mean, it's always some other complaint, some other issue. Um, that's that's going to be clouding the, the picture. I mean, if you've got cough and a fever, it's easy to go down the line to pneumonia, but this can come in any flavor, um, any complaint. Uh, you know, obviously it covers all socioeconomic backgrounds, you know, all chief complaints, so it can be really tough. What are some of the red flags um, that that paramedics should be on the lookout for with non-accidental trauma, you know, both between the patient, the family, uh, provider interaction on history. I mean, there's several ways we can kind of be clued in. What are, what are some of the ones that you feel like are most important? So I'd like to start with just thinking about injury patterns. I think that's one of the easiest ways to understand identification of non-accidental trauma. But I do think it's important to remember that many of these kids cross our paths because of complaints and concerns that are actually unrelated to inflicted injury. But if we're astute in our evaluation, we may identify things that make us concerned. So for example, it's not uncommon for us to see children with the typical complaints this time of year where maybe they have a you know, respiratory viral illness like bronchiolitis or the flu. And when we're evaluating them, we identify bruising patterns that don't belong on that child. And as a result, can identify that that child's actually being victimized despite the fact that the reason that they're in our care is not related to that. So when I think about identifying non-exile trauma or looking for evidence of non-exile trauma, I really think about injury patterns. And the most important one when we think about non-exile trauma is bruising. So bruising is actually the most often the first indication that maltreatment's ongoing, and yet it's missed as an indication of abuse up to 44% of the time in kids that ultimately die um, from inflicted injury. So this is a pretty big deal. And you can imagine that it's really easy to overlook bruising, right? Kids are 
curious and they're clumsy and we expect them to have bruises. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that bruising doesn't happen in most kids until they're older. And even then there are some patterns that should make us more worried. So as an example, there was a really great study done many years ago where they looked at 973 well children who were presenting to their pediatrician for just well child visits. These were kids three years and under. And they just documented if the children had any bruising on their bodies and where the bruising was and that's it. And what they found was that in kids under six months of age, 0.6% of them had any bruising whatsoever. And in fact, it wasn't until they really started sort of walking or cruising that they had many bruises at all. And so the point of that study or the, I think what that study really shared with us was that kids who don't cruise don't bruise. So you have to really match the developmental stage of the child to what you're seeing in front of you. So if you have an infant who's four months old, five months old, and you see bruising on that child, you need to be very suspicious that something is going on for that kid. That's an impressive number. 0.6 tells you that if you see a bruising in a, in a patient less than a year, you know, it's not walking around. The odds are stacked pretty highly that something, something concerning is going on. I, don't, I think that's sort of the, the take-home message of that. Would you agree? Absolutely. And of course, it's hard for us to want to act on these small little bruises that we see, you know, here or there, because it's such a little finding, but it's unfortunately indicative of a big event in a small child. And then we look at also where bruises are. So there are some bruises that make us a lot more concerned. So bruising on the trunk, for example, on the hand or anywhere around the ears or the neck is pretty suspicious for abusive injury. And we need to do more of an investigation at that time. So Bruising is probably the biggest one. After that, I think, you know, there's a lot that we hear about and learn about. Fractures, for example, are another common early indication of abuse in kids, but that's even harder, I think, for our pre-hospital community. So typically, I think we teach that there are certain fracture patterns that are more indicative of abuse. And while that's true, the bottom line is that just about any kind of fracture can be accidental or inflicted. And what we really have to do is make sure that the fracture itself matches the history that's given in the developmental stage of the child. And that's really hard to do, I think, in the pre-hospital setting. But if you have a young child with what looks to be a femur fracture, for example, there's a decent chance that that's an abusive injury, though certainly not 100%. What about interaction with the family? Is there anything family interaction-wise, um, you know, upon history questioning, is there anything there that we can uh, sort of put in our back pockets to use as, as clues or is that not as helpful? It's always helpful. I think the general gestalt of the room is something that we don't give enough credence to, especially for our pre-hospital providers. This is what they do day in and day out. They have a really good sense of when things aren't adding up, but I don't think it's formulaic. There's not necessarily a thing that you can point to that says there's an issue here in the home. You know, we think about, for example, kids that are either too attentive or not attentive enough to strangers, but all kids are different. And, and you know, in the setting of a child who's maybe ill or injured, their responsiveness to everybody else in the room may be altered to begin with. So I think there's, there's not something that you can kind of hang your hat on, but I think that providers should feel comfortable trusting their intuition because that intuition has been finally honed over many years for many of our providers. And they can sense when things just don't seem right. I do think when you start looking at issues where there's concerns about maybe domestic violence, that becomes a little bit harder to address and separate out to make sure that you're transporting the right folks safely. But that gets a little bit beyond just inflicted injury in kids. And that makes sense, you know, from, from the standpoint of an emergency physician, which is, you know, again, not, not the same as the pre-hospital environment, but oftentimes, you know, for me in these situations, when I find, find these kids, it's, it's a puzzle, right? There's not one single piece 
and it involves you know the physical exam the interaction the child's appearance you know the social situation the chief complaint and if i'm understanding what you're saying correctly is that there's no clear obvious slam dunk for really any of these whether it's bruising fracture pattern family interaction the child's disposition but we see these you know we see these patients all the time we we know what normal is and what abnormal is and when you see enough enough of the uh, concerning uh, signs whether it's physical exam whether it's interaction whether it's potential domestic violence these should all when you add those all together and you have you know more than one you should probably have your antenna up a little bit more is that correct I do think that's true. And I think there obviously there are certain signs that are more indicative of maybe neglect or an unsafe space that are more obvious and clear. So for example, if you see drug paraphernalia around, if you see that the child is sleeping on a cushion on the floor or there's not adult supervision, uh, if the child is particularly unclean, it doesn't appear that there's been any attention paid to the child. I think the, the neglect is easier to identify just at face value than abuses. And all of those things, I think it's important to remember, are reportable. And, you know, our providers are mandated reporters nationally. So this isn't something to dismiss. So we're in a house, we, you know, run a call on a patient, uh, the complaint is unrelated, but we see potentially signs, signs of neglect, we see a, a bruise in a nine month old, um, on the trunk or on the abdomen. So we've got some signs, we've got some, some concerns based on the surrounding space like you described, as well as on the physical exam. What sort of uh, tactics or path should the paramedic take as far as when they load and go with the patient, get to the hospital, what are some of the steps they should take along the way? So, I, you know, I think as always, when we're talking about pre-hospital care, there are layers, right? And and your first priority is to get that child out of that environment and into a safe environment where you have more control. So getting them into the ambulance and getting them to the facility for definitive care is, is your top priority. Important though, in that moment to also consider whether there are other children in the home, because evidence tells us that if one child is being neglected or abused, it is likely that other children in the home are experiencing the same thing. So we want to make sure that we're keeping everybody safe. Now that typically will not mean that you as a paramedic are going to be removing all of the children at the same time, but it does mean that there's a little bit more time pressure to make sure that you are communicating with law enforcement and child protective services in the hospital to make sure that measures can be taken to ensure that all the children are safe. I think barring that, your first step once you get to the hospital is to make sure that you've communicated very clearly to the receiving personnel what you saw and what your suspicions are. So that would include both nursing and the physician who's taking over care for the child. I think Unfortunately, those things can get lost in communication sometimes. So saying it to everybody you need to say it to and saying it clear is important. You also want to make sure that you document it in your run sheets. And then finally, just reporting your concerns to those taking over care is not sufficient. So some people think, well, I've told them the ball's in their court. They can report or not report. If you have suspicions, you are a mandated reporter and you're protected in your reporting, but you have to report. I think that leads into the next question pretty nicely. What are some of the major mistakes that you see providers make, especially pre-hospital providers, uh, when they suspect non-accidental trauma? And I think you probably just hit number one, but that is, you know, communicate, communicate, communicate. If I was, if, if I made my list, what, what ends up on your list there? I think that I think that really is number one, two, and three. I think people tend to be reticent to suggest that someone is abusing their child, right? No one, that's not a comfortable thing to do. Nobody wants to say, you know, these injuries don't make sense. 
And when we see injuries like this, it's usually because someone is is hurting the child. You know, that's that's not a comfortable place to sit. Um, and and you don't want to bring more difficulty to families by reporting them to CPS. And you know, there's there's lots of bad stuff that happens with that. It's not like it's a, a little event, whether or not it turns out that there's an accidental injury or non-accidental, just the process of having CPS involved can be very scarring to families. So it's it's not something that we take lightly, but the alternative is that we have children who are being injured that we're not caring for appropriately, and many of those children will die if we don't intervene. So I think just getting comfortable saying, this is what I know, this doesn't make sense, I have concerns, and I'm going to report um, is really the most important thing that you do. Looking towards wrapping up here, you know, this is obviously a, a tough area to discuss a tough area to teach. We obviously need to brush up here at MCHD on this topic, which is why we invited you on today. As far as educational tools, approaches to teaching non-accidental trauma to paramedics, what are some of the best ways that you know you see to, to approach this topic? Because it's, it's one that it's a little bit different in that it doesn't always fit to a strict lecture-based, you know, text-based, pharmacologic, physiologic type discussion. It's a little more, um, little more intuition Every situation is going to be a little bit different. So, how do you how how should our how should our paramedics look look to brush up on this and to hone up and to be stronger uh, when considering it? So, I think there are a few things. There's one thing I I do want to sort of mention in terms of um, reporting and documentation is that while we've talked a little bit today about kind of red flags, bruising, fractures, I would add burns to that list. By the way, young children though, again, are curious and will stick their hands where they don't belong. Burns should always make us suspicious that there may be abuse ongoing because it's often used as punishment for children, especially around toilet training, believe it or not. So burns should make us concerned. And then lastly, the call for the unresponsive child, especially the unresponsive infant. Um, While there are a lot of things on the differential for that, right, SIDS is something that can occur. Abusive head injury is a common reason for the unresponsive neonate. And so infant, I should say, not just neonate. So being attentive to, again, what the scene looks like and documenting very clearly everything you identify in physical exam and the situation in which you found the child is really important. When I think about how to educate around this and what resources are available, pediatric education for the pre-hospital provider or PEP does a lot of case-based learning and they spend a lot of time talking about inflicted injury in kids and safe transfer of children. I think that's a great sort of pre-packaged way to begin. I think in your area, getting some of the experts involved to talk about their experiences and the best way to communicate with them can be helpful. So for example, if you have access to some social workers or some of your child protective services personnel for the city, or uh, if you have child abuse pediatricians in the area, having them come and do education can be really valuable. And then finally, I think always having this as an idea in your differential when you're doing audit and review cases for pediatric care, I think allows providers to continue to think about this as a possibility so that when you have runs, um, it's something that pops up early which will make you consider whether or not it's something you need to be more mindful about. Excellent, excellent. So let's, uh, just to recap for all the listeners out there, so red flags, again, bruising, especially especially less than a year. I like your uh, cruising and bruising rhyming reminder there that I won't forget that one. Burns, fractures, unresponsive kids. Again, none of these are slam dunks, but they all are concerning. And when we hear these run calls, it just should be a reminder for us to keep our eyes and ears open and to consider non-accidental trauma as a potential possibility, not that we're going to go in and, and make that call initially really ever. It's just our job, I think, in the pre-hospital environment to be concerned. Uh, obviously, keep the kid, keep the child safe is priority number one. Make sure that if there are other children, keep them safe as well, and then communicate as well as you can and uh, document and report appropriately with both the emergency department, the young, you know, the receiving nurse, the receiving doc, and then with all other 
uh, law enforcement, uh, CPS folks as deemed appropriate. Sum it up pretty well. I think that's pretty thorough. Yeah. And then, you know, again, my last is to remind our providers to really trust their, their instincts. They've been doing this for a long time. And I think they have a good sense for when things aren't adding up. And even if they can't quite put their finger on it, they should listen. They should listen to that. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on and joining us today, Elizabeth. We appreciate your time and we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Casey. My pleasure. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.